Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, I'm Sakar Kaule, and with me, I have the pleasure of having Anthony Walker with uh, Buckingham uh, Brokerage. Welcome to the show, uh, Anthony. I appreciate your time. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. And um, Anthony is based uh, in Los Angeles, uh, which we all know is a very high-priced market. And today uh, at the show, we are going to get into some interesting aspects of how uh, you know his company uh, has been able to acquire properties in such a low cap and a high price environment and make it work. So I think it's going to be a very insightful conversations uh, today where Anthony is going to share some of his tips and tricks as to how he identifies and what goes behind uh, sort of acquiring such properties and the intelligence that you have to build around it. So with that, Anthony, uh, welcome to the show once one more time, and Thank you. Uh, please give uh, you know give me uh, sort of your background, how you started sure. investing, uh, how you came about, and what sort of uh, you know opportunities you are looking at this point, uh, Anthony. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into investing uh, first because I met the company that I I work with now as a broker called Buckingham Investments. I was a client of theirs. Uh, and they specialize in just teaching investors to get started, mostly with multifamily investments right here in our local area, which is Southern California, which I know a lot of people think you can't make money here. Um, I bought my very first investment property in 2006. Uh, obviously not the greatest timing there. And I wrote that yeah, one all the way right, down right. and all the way back. But we all but, know what happened just two years ago, right? <laughs> yep. Didn't give it back though. Um, and then I really started to get aggressive on the multifamily side. Uh, around 2010, 2011, picking up stuff there. That's when my relationship with Buckingham started. Um, started with a little duplex uh, in Long Beach, which is a, a market here that we do a ton of business in, and kept buying stuff, uh, you know, adding value, refinancing, exchanging. And then along the way, I started helping our clients doing the same thing. So I would use my brokerage business to help me acquire more property and help our and help our clients go grow their own portfolios. Today, uh, have I think 13 buildings now, about 110 units. So these are kind of small and medium sized apartment buildings, and these are mostly in kind of transition zones that are redeveloping that were maybe uh, not as nice and are getting nicer rapidly that are very close to you know nicer areas but where people are, are moving into which i think we're seeing in a lot of areas in the country right now mm -hmm. and, and have done a lot of value add deals in order to obviously make the numbers work out in cash flow because we are in we're in a low awesome. cap rate high grm market here got it got it awesome so um i think first question that jumps out um anthony is 
how the heck you're making this work? You know, you're buying buildings at sort of a two and a half, three, four cap. They need work. Uh, could you maybe share with our, uh, sure. you know, our viewers, uh, how do you go about this? Like, what are the telltale signs you're looking for uh, in your right. market? So it's all about the market rents here. You know, if you know what a what a unit can rent for, redone and upgraded, then you're going to know your stabilized cap rate or your stabilized gross rent multiplier, which is going to allow you to calculate your stabilized cash flow after you raise rents. So often we're buying buildings that have anywhere between a 20% to even, you know, I've done buildings that have had 100% upside in rents that need to be repositioned, remodeled, uh, units upgraded in order to cash flow. And so the numbers look awful often at purchase. Like you mentioned, two, three, four percent cap rates. But we'll frequently see deals where the stabilized cap rate is at a six percent or even higher here in Los Angeles. And so that allows you to buy stuff with those with those rates. If you're at a six cap, you know, stabilized, you can cash flow with twenty-five percent down on the initial purchase. So figuring out the financing, you have to obviously use bridge debt to get that done. You're not gonna be able to do a conventional loan it's not going to debt service unless you have a huge down payment to go in with it um, but if you can get those relationships with either private or bridge debt lined up buy the property turn it around in the span of six to twelve months and then either refinance later or sell you're in really good shape and then you've added a ton of value and you now have a cash flowing asset on top of that i see so uh, regarding bridge debt is that uh, like an expensive hard money uh, there, Anthony, with 12, 14% with bunch of points? Or is it like a true bridge debt that uh, come along? Uh, could you maybe share? Uh, I've done both. So, you know, I think there, there's, there's quite a few bridge programs out there where the rates are, you know, even in the sevens, you'll even maybe see stuff in the six. Uh, it's interest only, so the payments are easier to do. Some of these lenders will give you a renovation budget and uh, basically an account that you can draw for, draw from to do your renovation so you don't have to fund it out of your own pocket. Some of them will even give you an interest reserve mm -hmm. so they'll make the mortgage payments for you during the stabilization period. That mm -hmm. helps a lot. Those loans have pretty strict underwriting appraisals and they're, they can be difficult to deal with even after close because there's a lot of stuff that goes on with fund control with those banks. Sure, I've done a sure. of those. Inspections, um, permits, there's just oh, a lot that, of Yeah, so you know, I've, done, I've done a couple of those and haven't had great experiences with those. So what I tend to do is you can get pretty good deals on more uh, informal bridge loans where the rate's a little higher. I think right now we're seeing 9% is a typical interest rate. That's mm -hmm. still interest only. You'll pay about one and a half points on something like that. So the mm -hmm. terms are not too bad. Uh, that'd be for like a 12 month loan that's then extendable for another 12. And mm -hmm. I've just found it makes my life a lot easier to go in with that. That allows me to compete really hard on the purchase mm -hmm. because those loans don't need to do nearly as much underwriting. We sure. have relationships with lenders while they're basically look at our pro forma, our write up on the property. If they agree with us and we have a good relationship, they're going to fund it and we can close in a couple of weeks. So sure, sure. Mm. that's, I do that more often than I do the more traditional bridge bridge loans that you might hear about that have sure. more strict writing standards. Right. Right. So it obviously sounds like a relationship based uh, yeah. prior positive experience goes a long way. Um, and speaking of uh, that uh, sort of bridge, um, are these, you know, like private individuals uh, or, you know, quasi uh, you know, two or three individuals uh, with a company uh, 
who are lending you money uh, knowing right. based on your prior relationship uh, is it more of that nature uh, anthony out here it's not it's usually people that are running debt funds that go out and raise funds from other private individuals sure uh, family trusts companies mm -hmm. and then they specialize in kind of placing those funds into different sure it's a yield play for them basically right they and then they make the arbitrage of the points on the sure. deal so there's there's these guys that do a lot of these loans out here and it's not like you're necessarily getting the money from one individual although sometimes you will it depends how they structure each deal but you're able to go back to the same say loan broker or the person managing each debt fund to get that done right right so now uh, speaking of your deals anthony right um, as expensive those purchase prices are right so a novice investor coming in trying to you know gauge your market uh, i would say you know the chances of failure are pretty high and also i would almost maybe preface this by saying that trying to be successful in your market requires a extreme precision and a lot of intelligence that you gotta study exact rents know exact you know what those rents are block block by block and study that data before someone can make a decision that hey i'm just going to jump in and buy a six unit building uh in your market would that be a correct statement yes yeah, so you definitely don't want to go in with your eyes closed on these things you need to know your market rent so you can get yourself in big trouble um luckily you can work with people like us and we can help you do that because we do a lot of these things sure. uh, but sure, yeah, you really, you gotta know. On the other hand, you know, although you have to know your numbers, there's a, it's a dense area out here. There are a lot of rental comps available and it's fairly easy to do the research and figure out where you're gonna be. So, you know, and, and there's also a huge rental demand here. So it's not like you need to differentiate the end product that far from the next unit over. There's mm -hmm. so much demand for our space here. Vacancy rates are so low that, you know, renting the, the finished, renovated units are pretty easy good very good point there so speaking about market research anthony um i know when you go to let's say zillow or these other uh, public websites like redfin and things like that right sometimes the data can be flawed right, right. so if i am a new investor coming into your market or for example, a curious listener uh, listening to this podcast, uh, could you maybe give our uh, listeners some uh, sort of tips and tricks that sure. you have used so far to, you know, gain intelligence on your market? Right. And also maybe, you know, look for signs in your deals that, hey, if you see some of these numbers, uh, these may be, uh, you know, some of the show tail signs of, uh, you know, possibility of a good deal in a uh, in your market could you maybe yeah. uh, speak to some of that yeah so i think first of all you know if you want to do this in any market you've got to have a strong relationship with a great property manager mm -hmm. they're going to be a way better source of real market rent information than poking around on zillow or redfin or anything like that if they're managing a bunch of units in the area that you're looking to invest they should be coming along with you when you're doing walkthroughs or inspections and you're looking at getting buildings in, uh, in contract. We bring them with on everything that we do and they help us calibrate and double check on what we think the market rents might be because they're gonna have to manage the units. So I think that's number one for getting a sense of market rents. Um, as far as easier to access um, rent data, my favorite website is Rentometer. 
because it helps aggregate rents, asking rents from lots of different platforms. In our market, at least, I've found that to be a very accurate website. You have to watch it a little bit because it'll sometimes if you're in a, in a market with not a lot of rent comp data, it'll pull things from way too wide of a radius and it won't be very accurate. But in our market, it's there's so many rentals that in a few block radius, you can get really quality data from that website. So that's probably my favorite source there. Very um, good point. As far as looking at buildings and identifying whether it's going to be a good deal or not, hmm. you know, have those conversations early with your manager. Take a look at the at the rent comps on sites like that, and when when you see listings. Double check the square footage of the unit. It's really easy to see, you know, one bedroom. Oh, market rent here is $1,400. I'm sure of it because it's a one bedroom. But, you know, if it's, a, if it's a 500 square foot one bedroom versus 750 square foot one bedroom, that's a different story. So Thank do you. the math on how many square footage is in, you know, how much square footage is in each unit. That's going to help you figure out your market rents. And then from there, try and get a sense of the narrative and the story behind the building. Is it owner managed? Have they owned it for a really long time? You know, is it an out of area owner? Um, is there an opportunity there that, or maybe is there a reason that rents would be under market? And that's, that's going to help tell you the story and give you a good idea of whether you're actually looking at a good deal. I see. I see. And do you, uh, track data like, you know, on a monthly basis, quarterly basis in general as to, you know, what may have sold around there to kind of gain a pulse of your market? Does your group does any of that, uh, Anthony, by the way? Absolutely. Yeah, we actually do our own market research in our area because we find the existing market research that you can go out and buy there in general is kind of on too large of a scale. It's sort of, it's available for large submarkets and metro areas, but we really want granular detailed mm -hmm. uh, market data. So we have uh, our analysis and research team go through every single quarter and look at every close sale, and we have them correct any errors and what we think might be you know, overstatements of the rents, and we publish our own market studies every quarter. So that allows us to track data um, year by year, quarter by quarter, keep track of trends. We do um, local meetings with investors where we'll present that data and go over what's happened in the last quarter, what we expect to be coming, and that gives us a great advantage over everybody else out here in looking at some of these deals. We also do that for two to four unit properties here, which are, is a really underserved market from the rest of the research platforms out there. I'm not sure you can get that kind of data anywhere else on two to four unit properties. So it's a huge advantage for us. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I think one of the beautiful things also is that you have your own brokerage. So yes. with with this niche, I'm sure you're able to, uh, you know, provide so much value to your clients because as you said, some of this data is just not out there publicly. And since your team is tracking this, I think it's a great, uh, you know, it's a great point to have this data handy and, you know, present it to your clients. Very, very, uh, very handy to have. Um, also speaking of these different buildings, uh, Anthony, um, here, like where I invest personally in Baltimore, we have very different uh, historic neighborhoods uh, and okay. how you analyze these buildings and the characteristics, uh, whether it's exterior or interior features and things like that, determine uh, and go a long way how these buildings are valued. Uh, is, it, uh, is it similar uh, in your market as well? We definitely have that going on. Um, I do a lot of business in Long Beach, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. and Long Beach is a really old city. It's one of the older cities in Southern California. Most of it was built in the 1920s, uh, which is great because a lot of the buildings have a ton of character, and that's really popular with the market there. 
uh, and with the renters, they love, you know, living in these restored older buildings that look a lot more interesting than your average 1960s box that you might see in the rest of LA. But for sure, there's a lot of historic districts in Long Beach. And in the historic districts, we're fortunate in that they really only control um, what you can do to the exterior of the building. It's not quite so stringent as it is on a true historically designated property. That's a very different thing where you then the city really wants to be involved with you on specific changes that you make. Right, but the right. majority of the buildings that are just in a historic district, they just want you to maintain a consistent style with what the way the building was built. So they want to approve your colors and your materials on the outside, but you're pretty much free to do whatever you want on the inside. So it keeps a really nice, consistent feel to the area. As long as you work with the city, it's pretty easy to get approval. They'll kind of just tell you, well, you can do this or this. You choose, and uh, well, you can do what you want on the inside. So then it's pretty nice. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, just a tip for our listeners uh, here, Anthony, what you said is very true, and that happens here in Baltimore City as well, yeah. uh, where we are investing in extremely close, tight knit, whether it's central business district, and the characteristics are exactly similar. Built, I mean, you know, buildings built in like let's say early 1800s or mid, uh, you know, 1900s and things like that. And stone front, uh, you know, they'll probably have pebble stone walkways in the front and things like that. Uh, probably 20 feet ceiling sometimes, like really tall ceilings. And there's so much character to these buildings and the way they are valued, their pricing model is different. Uh, it's just not based on square footage. Uh, some of these buildings, as you rightfully pointed out, Anthony, is that uh, they could be looking great vintage on the uh, exterior. But as right. you go in, it's a fully modern, uh, you know, uh, building with granite and, you know, like central AC and things like that, uh, which I think brings me uh, to the next topic uh, here, Anthony, is um, how you're identifying these buildings that what different value add components you're doing, whether it's mm -hmm. utilities or renovating kitchens and flooring right. or, you know, maybe doing different styles of paintings and things like that. Could you maybe elaborate your sure. philosophy as to how you go about uh, about this? Yeah, so, I mean, you want to spend your money that, on improvements that are going to get you more rent, obviously. Um, so, you know, for the exterior, we do... Ideally, you can find a building that already has some nice curb appeal that just needs to be cleaned up a little bit. So paint and landscaping goes a long way, and that's some of the cheapest things you can do on the outside of the building. We almost always do that when we buy a new one. Um, if there's an opportunity to change out siding or do a little with exterior lighting, I'll add a few touches there. That tends to modernize things a lot. You'd be surprised how much even the lettering or the numbers on the address makes a difference, which is a really cheap thing to do uh, to kind of refresh it and, you know, make it stand out on the street. Um, and then beyond that, uh, sometimes I will do windows. I, I really like windows as one of the best improvements you can do because it improves the curb appeal on the outside and it also improves the feel on the inside of the units. Sure. So on windows uh, there, Anthony, what exactly are you doing? Are you painting the trims or are you doing any specific colors or like making them yeah. be like the, uh, you know, sometimes you have those dark uh, color uh, ones. Are you right. doing that? So we're usually just doing new white vinyl windows um, that are really cheap and easy to get in. They are, they're easy to do on a lot of buildings. They don't allow you to do that in the historical districts though. You can't have white vinyl. You have to have the original wood or 
um, whatever else matches historically. So then you're really doing more restoration. And then we're bringing in companies that will usually restore, fill, and replace the existing wood windows, which can be more expensive. So I'll tend to do the windows in the buildings that aren't historically designated. <laughs> and then around the white, I, I like to do a, a nice gray. The contrast of the gray and white, I think, is a great modern look. It goes well with a lot of different styles of architecture, um, and it makes the building pop. Right, right. And so when you're looking at these deals, um, Anthony, uh, what sort of rent spread are you looking for to make the numbers work? Because it yeah. sounds like your strategy is to, you know, value add, improve the rents and perhaps hold it for the long term. Uh, right. Would that be a correct characterization? Yeah, that's accurate. Gotcha. So how, how, like what sort of rent spreads you're looking for? Because it, it sounds like, um, you know, if you're just buying the building based on, uh, you know, let's say, an, uh, you know, on market rent, and right. you do the, uh, you know, improvement, that's, that's going to make you pretty much a, a high price landlord, right? So right. that probably will lead to, uh, you know, not having your buildings rented, uh, you know, quickly. So you want to be, you know, as I call it, like, have a great product at the right price. And right you know, keep them consistently occupied. So uh, in other words, so when you're purchasing your buildings, you, you got to purchase them at a good price. So, um, and, you know, obviously look for those uh, rent bumps uh, along the way. Right. Would you maybe elaborate like sure. how, how you analyze that and how your philosophies are? So that? first of all, um, we have quite a few class A builders in the area building much larger buildings and catering to a totally different right. um, type of, renter sure. um, and I try not to get into that space and compete with those buildings right. and those are brand new construction high rises stuff like that they're getting you know $2,500 for a one bedroom unit wow. I'm more in the middle area there where, where I'm going to buy an older building I'm going to turn it around a bit I'm going to do a, a nice job on the inside but I'm not going to spend a fortune I'll probably spend anywhere between 10 and 15,000 on the interior of a unit to, re sure. to renovate it Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same one bedroom apartment might go for $1,400, $1,500, where it was maybe at 1000 previously. For me, the buildings tend to have an upside of at least 20% off existing rents, but it's less about what the upside is on actual rents than it is about the market gross rent multiplier or the market cap rate that I'm going to buy a building at. So sure. mm -hmm. that's really more what I'm looking at. If, if, I, if there's not very much upside in the, in the rents, but um, I don't have to do a lot of work and I get a great deal on the building and the market cap rates a six. That's one way to do it. And that's fine. Or if the rents need to be raised by 50% mm -hmm. and I pay a terrible cap rate on actual rents, uh -huh. but I can get it there and it gets to six in the end. It's actually the same result for me. So, sure. you know, it's, I'm not necessarily concerned only with the upside in rents. It's more about that stabilized scenario. And I do try and get buildings that are going to end up at least around a six cap you know, around 11, 10, 11 times gross on the gross rent multiplier. Once I get rents to market, that's really what I'm looking sure, for. Sure, sure. So for uh, a novice listener, um, you said a few terms that I think we should clarify and that are somehow unique to this space where, you know, you're buying buildings or, you know, high price building. This is not a sprawling uh, 200 unit complex. This right. is, you know, more dense area and the whole mechanics around how you buy them, how you sort of zone in on them uh, is extremely unique. It's, it's just a culture uh, uh, or, you know, as I call it, it's, it's a beast of its own. <laughs> Could you uh, some, uh, you know, these, uh, like uh, uh, the terms that you said, gross rent multiplier, what exactly is that? Or uh, 
it's correlation to what your market value of your building is going to be. Sure. So the easiest way to think about the gross rent multiplier is it is the dollars you pay in purchase price for every $1 in annual rental revenue. Uh, the math on it would just be the price or the value of the building divided by the gross scheduled rents, which would be the total of your rent roll times 12. And the interesting thing about the gross rent multiplier is it's a really simple metric. It completely ignores expenses. It ignores financing. It ignores vacancy. So it's an academic number, of course, because every building is going to have sure. expenses, financing, all that kind of stuff. But it's great because it's the purest possible representation you can get between the dollars that you're paying for the rent, which makes it really easy for me to do the analysis on these buildings, basically in my head or back of the envelope or whatever. I know that, you know, at, at 12 times gross, a building's going to cash flow with 25% down. Really, 13 times gross or below, that's going to work, just because I know how the expenses tend to work in our market. And it's really easy to see listings that have understated expenses that might, you know, skew the cap rate. By the same ticket, if you know that the gross rent multiplier is a representation of what you're paying in purchase price for every $1 in annual rent, it's also the value you create by raising the rent by $1. Sure. So if our local GRM is around 15, for every dollar you can raise the rent, you make $15 in value, which is a huge benefit for investing in a more expensive area like Southern California. Awesome, awesome. Uh, so there are a couple of questions that I think we should again clarify within that conversation. Um, the expenses that you said, right? The gross rent multiplier I want to highlight for our viewers is a sort of a thumb rule or just a starting point. The expenses in these buildings can vary whether, you know, which type of heating system you have, what sort of cooling that is, does it have? So it's almost, I call it a as I said, just a preliminary starting point that whether you are in a shooting uh, range or not, but then you have to sort of normalize these deals based on, oh gosh, it's so dated or the uh, probably the heating system will need replacement and things like that. Could you maybe share some uh, words of experiences that once you have this deal that looks uh, decent within a sort of a GRM bracket, uh, if I may call it, right? If it looks something similar within your GRM range, uh, could you maybe share like what sure. steps you take or what other factors and specifically I'm saying like expenses are like a big one uh, that right. can, you know, skew a deal, right? Could you maybe uh, talk about some of that, Anthony? Sure. So we're really fortunate here in, in SoCal. We have great weather, right? So... Right. A lot of the expenses and the variability that I think you'd see in other parts of the country, sure. uh, like I'm originally from Minneapolis, so there's lots to think oh, yeah. about <laughs> like heating and stuff like that, and right. the winter and the maintenance and you know all that kind of stuff. Right. Here in, in California, uh, especially in the coastal markets where we do a lot of business, mm -hmm. it's rare that any building would ever have mm -hmm. air conditioning. Got it. Uh, it, it's rare that any of the buildings we work in even have uh, central heating or forced air heating. The vast majority of the buildings we do have got one gas wall heater and that's it in the living room and and that's kind of our market so that makes life a lot easier to begin with Man, for us. i tell you and your life is simple i can tell you that <laughs> yep, really easy uh, but a lot of things that we'll you know identify uh on the expense side right off the bat is how much landscaping is there 
mm-hmm. because the water bill can be big. You, you know, here we don't get a lot of rain. So if the building has a lot of landscaping, you're, you know, you're going to have a lot more utility expense there for keeping up the building. We have some old buildings here as well that are master metered for electrical and gas. So that's a huge one. You can't really compare, you know, it's not apples to apples on a separately metered building for electric and gas versus a master metered building, especially for electric, you see that. And then, you know, your, your utility bills are going to be way higher. Those are probably the two biggest easy ways to identify buildings that are going to have higher expense ratios. After that, you want to look for amenities, right? So if you've got elevator service, that's a big one. If you're 16 units and above, you need a resident manager. Uh, If you have a guard or you have staff on site, that's a huge expense. Most buildings have a laundry room, um, but that's pretty minor. It's really when you start getting into some of these, you know, amenities and bigger grounds and stuff like that, that, that things start to get a lot more expensive. I see, I see. So now, uh, speaking of those master meters and things like that, so if someone needs to uh, purchase such a building, right, Mm -hmm. uh, do you advise them to maybe build back, do like a rubs program, as we call it? Do you do some of that, Anthony, or you, uh, is landlord absorbing, uh, you know, all the utility bills? How's your strategy around that? You You can do it kind of one of four ways is where I, I see it a lot here. You can go solar, um, which has not actually been a great solution for us here. It hasn't penciled out that well on the deals, on the buildings that I've seen. And then you, usually in most cases, you have a lease that then is encumbered on the property and that becomes a problem. Sure. Um, you can do it like a rub system and back build the tenants. We see that occasionally here, but it's not as common as it is in some other markets, I understand. So mm-hmm. tenants can be a little put off by that. Mm-hmm. And you know, by dividing it by the square footage, you know, you can't necessarily say who's using more and who's using less. So it's, it's not the fairest way to do it. Although you do see that happen. Um, you can also just charge more in rent and absorb it and say utilities are included. That's probably the most common thing that I see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, it's actually not that expensive to separately meter a property if it's master metered right now. You right. work with the city, work with an electrician and, you know, build the meters it's going to drastically lower your cap rate by eliminating expenses and then fairly passing on the tenant's expenses based on their own actual usage. That's probably the best way to do it, but that's also one of the more expensive ways to do it. Right, right. So uh, what sort of expense ratio you typically uh, run these buildings at, Anthony? And the reason I ask is that uh, obviously when someone is analyzing these buildings and uh, you want to spot some inaccuracies, uh, you know, maybe that may be thrown off by sellers. Uh, what is sort of your on-the-field experience about your expense right. ratios? A great easy rule of thumb that I found to be accurate in many cases here is about a 35% expense 35. ratio. Got it. And I know that's lower than a lot of other areas in the country. Sure. sure. Uh, and I think that's two reasons. One, expenses here are, are lower in general because of, like I said, the weather and the simplicity to our mm-hmm. buildings. The other reason is that the cost of some of these services and expenses are not a whole lot more than they are in other markets here, but relative to the rent that you bring in, it's so much lower on a percentage basis because our, reden- our rents are so ridiculously high. <laughs> so you do actually see a lower expense ratio here than you do in a lot of markets. Right, right. And there's a reason for it. I think as you described the heating components or the uh, cooling central AC and things like yep. that, you don't have that. So that does tend to be a large share of expense uh, in, uh, you know, sort of uh, in most of the like Eastern seaboard or, you know, like Southeast markets and things like that. So that's a major difference right there. So uh, I want to shift the discussion to 
the valuation that I think uh, we were saying just a few moments earlier, Anthony, right? So you said you you do the value add and things like that, and you know uh, you have sort of a uh, factor by which your uh, you know bu- uh, building value increases. Could you maybe uh, elaborate as to you know how you go about it and how it works in your market, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, buildings really are appraised and resold here on cap rate and GRM. So, you know, that's what I love about apartment buildings in general. If you know your market and you know what, you know, the market GRM is, you're going to be able to know your exit value either on a resale or on a refi. So if I know, for example, going in, like the GRM is probably the easiest way to do this calculation. If I know I'm in a market that, I mean, in an area that is a 15 times gross area, for every dollar I raise the rent, I make 15 bucks. So if I can raise the rent by $100, I make quite a bit of money. I make 1500 sure. you know, there, that's only per month. If I can raise it by, you know, $1,000 here, I make 15000 And so frequently we'll go in and see, you know, properties where your, your units are two or $300 uh, per month under market. Mm-hmm. And by increasing the rents by two or three hundred dollars per unit, which is actually not that much here, mm-hmm. you're you're adding fifty thousand dollars in value per unit or thereabouts when you're redoing is when you're redoing the units, and that tends to cost you anywhere between ten and fifteen grand. So the numbers actually work out really well for value add. Uh, deals here as far as increasing your equity position goes. That's awesome. It's it's a strong market, and I think your ability to, uh, you know, charge uh, sort of premium rents for a renovated building right. uh, is uh, is a lot higher. And I'm sure there is a sort of a market cycle to it that uh, perhaps in certain months the rentals probably are short. So whatever is the inventory, that's probably a tad pricier. Right. Uh, which story is true here in 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 uh, my side of the uh, neck of woods here is that there are certain months where the uh, just the de- uh, demand is so high that we are charging more rents whether it's you know $75 to $125 we are charging more um, right. do you see that dynamic uh, in, in your market as well anthony I, I think it's there for sure it's a lot easier to rent units in the spring and summer that's when people are looking to move um and it's especially quiet in December and January when people are dealing with the holidays and the turnover of the year. You know, luckily we don't have snow to deal with. So people are still willing to move during that time. But yeah, when I've had vacancies during over the holidays, they've, they've sometimes sat on the market and it's taken much longer. Whereas this time of year, you know, it's late March right now. This is perfect. So this is a great time to be you know, renovating units and getting them back out. Um, I'd say they're easier to rent in the spring and summer, although I wouldn't necessarily say we get a huge premium on the dollar amount. They just go faster. I see. Uh, So speaking of value add, what specific things you are doing in your apartment? Uh, Mm -hmm. Like I know you said you're spending somewhere closer to between 10 to 15,000 a unit. What, What specific things you are addressing in these buildings? So we're usually doing vinyl plank floors throughout the whole unit, which are great. They're um, impervious to water, so they're really durable. They last for multiple tenancies, and they're not that expensive. That makes a huge difference, on, especially some of these smaller units, because mm-hmm. the unit's going to feel a lot larger without carpet, with the hard flooring in it. Sure. Um, so we always do that. Uh, of course, paint, do a two-tone paint. I like to do a nice gray with white trim and accents um, in a lot of our units. We are redoing kitchens and about half the time we'll pull the cabinets out entirely and do the you know prefabricated cabinets but still 
nice, you know, the European style hinges and then a quartz countertop on top with an undermount sink. And then you can get nice plumbing fixtures that look like the high end stuff. Some of those, you know, kind of gooseneck sinks that look sure. really cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe an interesting backsplash, some glass tile or something like that that's been popular recently. Um, in bathrooms, if we can do it, we'll reglaze an old tub. We'll usually pull out a plastic or fiberglass shower enclosure um, if it's in the budget, and we'll do a tile surround with a little niche that just really updates things and looks way nicer in the bathroom. Some of these old units come with clawfoot tubs, actually, that have been um, tiled over. So when we have the opportunity there, or if there's hardwood floors under carpets, we're going to restore that instead. We're going to pull up the carpet, refinish the hardwood floors. We're going to take the tile off of the clawfoot tub, try and restore and reglaze that tub and put that back in. The rental market here really likes that sort of. Oh, there's so much demand for those clawfoot tubs and, uh, you know, just the appeal of that entire dynamic, uh, you know, a lot of young professionals moving in and things like that. The whole retro look, as I call it, it's it's such a, such a uh, crowd puller, you know? Yep. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, like what sort of, um, you you know, pricing you're paying on these, like, uh, like an average kitchen uh, or a a bathroom for tiling, uh, what what sort of dollars spend you're doing just on the kitchen or. It's it's not bad. You know, I think to do a kitchen like that's probably four or 5,000 bucks, depending on the size, Uh, you know, the bathroom, probably three to four, you know, and then the balance of the budget is going to go into flooring and paint. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can do a whole unit like that. Like I said, between ten to fifteen thousand dollars. I pretty much don't care what condition the unit's in when I see it, because whether it's just out of date and clean, or whether it's totally beat up and needs to be done, it's kind of the same price. You know, I mean, um, it's, it's going to be right about in that range every time. Right, right. And actually, sometimes in these scenarios, the more beat up the unit, uh, yeah. I think you, you, you have that ability uh, or you get leverage to negotiate further totally. because you know, like whether it's, you know, yeah. 20% bad or, you know, 50% bad, you want the 50% bad so that you can buy it cheaper, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. Right, right. And speaking of these units um, here, right? Um, Anthony, what is your management strategy? Like basically, I know in a sprawling complex, you can have, uh, you know, on-site managers and things like that. So are you using local property managers or does your group, uh, I know many brokerages have a property management of their own as well. How do you go about managing your properties? We do not do our own management. Uh, I, I, we have a close strategic partnership with a man, local management company mm-hmm. that manages around 2,000 units in the area. Mm-hmm. And um, they, do, they manage all the buildings I own, and they manage the vast majority of the buildings that our tenants buy as well. I think that's such a specialized business, and it's so difficult that to do it ourselves, it would really distract us from you know, the brokerage business and finding the deals and helping our clients get into stuff. So I always use a professional manager on my buildings that tends to cost, you know, six or 7% for the size buildings that we're doing. And that's a totally full service uh, management company. You know, they pay all the bills, they do the accounting. I change my address for everything to their office. My tenants don't interface with me at all. And in fact, they even quarterback all of the work for me too. So I'm not out there buying materials or even dealing with any of the renovations, they do it for me. So they're an incredibly valuable partner to be able to, I wouldn't be able to do this without them at all. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
you're basically saying uh, obviously the property management side is uh, handled by them but yeah. at the same time the renovations are also uh, handled by them is that you yeah their supervisors do a great job and they know what needs to be done to the building to get to market rent so sure. what better person to handle the renovations than the person that's going to be renting the unit oh absolutely right? they they yeah. know it better they know the pulse of the market they know what's what's hot what's selling and yep. boom you have it in your units uh, so is there a construction uh, premium they charge uh, like i know some property management uh, companies charge uh, for such uh, renovations it's case by case uh, i think if it's you know a unit here a unit there you know or keeping the building going they, they may not charge mm -hmm. um, if it's a big job and they're gonna do everything yeah then they're they're gonna charge I think they're usually gonna charge about eight percent of the job mm -hmm. uh, which is still cheaper than say hiring a general contractor mm -hmm. and they have great teams of workers and subcontractors that can do this at it for a really reasonable price so um, I think it's very fair we end up you know paying a lot less than we would if we went and hired a general contractor to do this stuff Gotcha, gotcha. This is a unique position and a unique style of uh, investing, Anthony, uh, which I think uh, is probably doesn't get br brought up in uh, many of the shows. And I think yeah. we're highlighting this uh, that uh, for a lot of our investors who may be, uh, frank, quite frankly, in your markets or uh, you know markets like uh, Washington D.C., which is you know right in your backyard sure. here, sure. Uh, probably New York downtown and things like that. It's a very viable strategy. Uh, the art of you know buying these properties at a tad below and you know doing your value adds and ra raising the rents to the market is an extremely uh, you know successful one actually, and I appreciate uh, your advice, uh, Anthony. Today, uh, please share with our listeners how they can find you and uh, sort of what things you're looking forward to now. Absolutely. Feel free to reach out to us. Our, our website is buckinghaminvestments.com. That's all spelled out in plural. And, and you can reach me at anthony.walker at buckinghaminvestments.com. That's my email. We'd love to hear from any uh, listeners and we'd love to help people out do the same thing. That, we're doing. that is that is wonderful. That is wonderful. Uh, thank you, Anthony. I appreciate all your yeah, advice you today. It's, it's been a pleasure having you and I look forward to, you know, uh, chatting more as you do more deals, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.